Hey, it's Greg Stanley. Do you know you can now win prizes such as a Starbucks gift card, Concord tickets, or car swag for being the first to answer an entertaining trivia question? Get the weekly trivia question by following me on Instagram or Facebook at The Collector Car Podcast and just DM me your answer. The first person with the correct answer wins. Also, as a new aspect of my automotive passion and hobby, I am a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. If you need assistance consigning a collector car at Amelia Island, Pebble Beach, Auburn, West Palm, or Hershey, email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. We'll have a special guest today, Renee Brinkerhoff. Renee, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Super glad to be on your show. Well, I really appreciate it, and thanks for coming on. And the reason I wanted to reach out to you is because you might not be a quote-unquote collector, but you're involved with automobiles in a really cool and amazing way that I just wanted to share with other folks. So if you could tell us, what have you done and what are you planning to do with your little Porsche 356 that you have? <laughs> well, we've been racing a Porsche 356 since, well, 2013. I started racing it in 2013. We did the La Carrera Panamericana multiple times and had lots of podium success there and then started what we call Project 356 World Rally Tour and the the goal there is to take the car and race it on every continent including Antarctica and in the process raise awareness donate funds to fight child trafficking. Wow that's really amazing I love the purpose behind what you're doing and where did this idea come from like where did you decide hey this is the route why a Porsche 356 you know, I have so many questions for you, but <laughs> if you could just tell us kind of where'd you come up with this idea and then why a, a Porsche 356? Because you're doing a lot in that little tiny car across many continents and different terrains. When I decided that I had to start racing, and it, for me it was a have to, it didn't start out as a want to. It was um, something I'd been telling myself for over 30 years, heard my voice, realized I'd been saying one day I'm going to race a car. And then realized, great, now I've got to go do that, and I know nothing about cars. But I'm so thankful that, for whatever reason, I told myself that, because through this experience and through having a 356 and racing it, I have had this most amazing experience in so many ways. But just to talk about the car, when I saw that car for the first time, which was, I believe, in maybe 2011, I'd never seen one before, I just said, that's the car. That's the car that I want to take out racing and, and to to do this one-liner. And I started in the La Carrera Panamericana. And as I mentioned, we, we had success from the get-go. The first year out, we won our class. And it was the first time in history for that to happen in a woman-driven team. And then we went back and um, kept having success and thought, wow, we need to do something more. We started Valkyrie Gives, which is our philanthropic arm. And we named it ourselves uh, Valkyrie Racing and Valkyrie Gives because of what they are. They're what I call angel warriors. Norse mythology, they were women soldiers, went to the battlefield, rescued the worthy, brought them to Valhalla, and restored life. And we thought, you know, that's super cool. And we want to be angel warriors, and that's where we got the name. But we realized we had a voice because we were we stood out. We're weird. We're odd, right? What's a woman <laughs> at her age starting racing and doing these 
extreme events. And so I thought, gosh, we can take this platform and if we go global or we do something bigger, we can have a bigger impact and a bigger voice because through the racing I was able to talk about what we were passionate about, which is to do something to stop child trafficking and to help these kids that are being exploited. And that's how this whole Project 356 World Rally Tour started. And the idea was, okay, we know if you stand out, people will pay attention to you more. So what can we do in this car that's never been done before? What's extreme? What's a huge challenge for the team, for the car, for me as a driver? Let's dial that all in. And that's how we chose the races that we've been doing across all these continents. And that's like the, the story in a nutshell. So if you would, could you count down your previous six races and then tell us what your seventh race is going to be? Well, we started North America by going back to the La Carrera Panamericana. It was its um, anniversary year. I believe it was its 25th anniversary. And we went back and we won our class that year, and that was our check-the-box for North America. From there, we went to Australia. And since the car was already prepared for tarmac rally racing, we said, okay, we have very little time from, from when La Carrera is finished to when you have to ship a car to get to Australia. So what can we do that's also on tarmac that's going to be a challenge for the car? So we did the what's called Target Tasmania, which is a fantastic rally in Tasmania, which is part of Australia, and that's about 2,000 miles, and we did that event. And we won our target plate, which is the first achievement. Uh, if you can't get a target plate, that's like really tough to do. People go year after year, don't get their target plate, and we accomplished that goal. So that was fantastic. And then from there, we took the car to South America. Gosh, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm thinking about this because it's all just happened so quickly, <laughs> and it sort of all blends together, right? So then we took the car to South America. And we did the Camino del Inca, and that is Peru's biggest rally race. And they have a huge, huge rally culture. It's a massive sport for them. It's probably as big as soccer. Um, they air it on all their networks, all their radio stations and television. It's, it's, it's hugely popular there. And we went into a, an event that is basically like a WRC. It's run like a WRC event. And it is all modern, purpose-built rally cars. Uh, it was the first time that they've ever had a classic car in the event. Uh, first time a Porsche, therefore a first time a 356. And there's only one other 356 in the whole country, and it never sees the light of day. So when we would come through the streets or down these mountain passes, people would be lined up yelling. And how they say Porsche is porch. So porch, porch, porch. <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic. And so that was South America. And then from there, we took the car. And that event is 50% tarmac and 50% gravel in Peru. And it was up to 16,000 feet. So really, really a lot of challenges there. And I could write a book just on what happened in Peru and all the things trying to get the car out of customs, et cetera. But we, from there, we went and did the Peking to Paris. And the Peking to Paris was our Asia and Europe. Um, we hit um, those two continents in that event. That was 9,000 miles. We did that last spring, last spring, summer. And um, that was, we had problems from the get-go in Mongolia, which um, were unfortunate. It was our, pro our mistakes, um, something so simple as not putting the air filters on all the way. And 
oh, letting wow. the dust of Mongolia get sucked into your carburetors all day long while you're racing through the Gobi Desert. So um, we had to, we had some problems and some challenges there to get the carbs put back together. But we finished and we uh, arrived in Paris with everybody, so that was fantastic. And then from there, we went to Africa and we did the East African Safari Classic Rally, which is held every three years. And there's never been a 356 Porsche entered in that event, and there's a reason why. (laughs) It's a massive, (laughs) massive, massive challenge for that car. It's really, really tough on that car. You're very limited on what you can do to, to you know, increase strength, change your suspension, et cetera, even just to get tires big enough or the right size to be on gravel was, uh, you know, a hurdle. But we completed that event. It was It's a nine-day rally, about 2,000 miles, all off-road or primarily off-road um, in Kenya, in Tanzania. Uh, it was the rainiest season they have had in 40 years. So all those roads that they picked to make it tough on the team and the, the car and the driver and everybody became really tough. So all those river crossings became big river crossings and all that right. mud became deeper mud. But um, that was the last event we did. That was last um, December 2019 that we finished it. And we're so uh, overjoyed to cross the finish line and to, and to finish that event. It was fantastic. I did that with my daughter. It's the first time I've ever had a family member in the car, the first time I've ever had a, a woman navigator. And uh, it was something I really had thought about doing. And we did that together. It was her first time to ever be in, in any race of any kind, first time to navigate. And it was absolutely exceptional. She, it, she did an amazing job. And the, our chemistry and the dynamic was really good in the car. And hopefully we can do that again in the future. In the upcoming, our final uh, challenge is in Antarctica and slated to be this coming winter, either December or January of this coming winter. And it will all be about what the ice conditions are to determine when we actually start it. But it is a race for one car. It's just for this little car. And it's to race 356 miles in uh, Antarctica, in the ice, on the ice, in those extreme conditions with that very unpredictable weather. And we are going to do some things to the car to make it a little eco-friendly as much as we can. And we are also going to attempt a world speed record, uh, land speed record in Antarctica. So there's two goals for Antarctica. And we have uh, sourced some amazing people to work to work with uh, to prepare the car and some polar explorers who have the world record right now for driving to the South Pole who have uh, agreed to help us accomplish this final goal. So I have, you know, definitely been talking a long time. And, and uh, Greg, I hope I haven't said too much, but that's our journey. That's what we've been up to. Yeah, no, you gave me so much, and I have so many questions for you. So I, I won't get these in order, <laughs> but bear with me. I guess my first question is, is, why a 356? Because if you told me I'm going to go across the Gobi Desert, that's probably the last car on my list to take to the Gobi Desert. So what was it about the 356 specifically? Was it, you know, kind of the way it looked, the history, the way you were able to outfit it? Like kind of what led you to go down that path? Well, I got that car, right, to to start racing. And I, 
I can't change to another car. It's really hard for me. Could we do a lot better in a race like the East African in a 911? Yeah, you betcha. You know, we could actually probably finish in the top three. We'd have the, the, the ability, the car would. And, but in a 356, there's so much nostalgia. I love the fact that there's limitations. I love the fact that it's really hard. I love how raw and rough it is and how limiting it is. I, 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 and I just love the way that car looks. And I have such a connection to that car that it's impossible to think about doing it in any other car. I've had this whole life metamorphosis in that, in that automobile. And every sound, every ding, Every right. you know, every everything about it, I just can't give it up. So, um, and I just I've just fallen in love with that model car. I absolutely love everything about it. Yeah, that's really great. Now, give us give our listeners a little peek as far as how do you prep for something like Peking to Paris? I mean, that just sounds like such an incredible list of things to do. Like, what did you do to the car to outfit it a little bit differently? I don't know. Kind of walk us through your prep for one of those big journeys. Well, you don't want to be too heavy, right? You don't want to weigh down the car. That's just going to put a lot of stress on it since you're going 9,000 miles. So you just try to make everything lean and mean. And um, in that event, you have to carry all your own parts and tools, your clothes, your sleeping bag, your tent, anything and everything you might need during that long trek, you have to fit into that car. So there's a lot of planning on space. That car does not have a lot of space. Right. <laughs> it is, you know, if you look at most of the cars that do the Peking repairs, they're a lot bigger. And, you know, there's a lot more comfort. It's a more comfortable ride, and there's definitely a lot more places to put things. But um, so just first of all, it's just logistically, you know, what are we going to take? What do we need to take? And, and then figuring out what are the things that are going to we're going to have the most trouble with the car, trying to anticipate that. And since we've already done some um, off-road events and done the tarmac events, we pretty much figured out what was weak in that car and the things that might need to be improved um, or the parts that we might need to take with us. So. That was helpful, but, uh, again, operator error. Who would have ever thought air filters would have been our nemesis? But um, we uh, had, you know, logistics, that's really taken care of by the Peking to Paris organizers, uh, special types of insurance, your medical kit, you know, figuring out what you're going to put in your medical kit, what you might need when you're on the side of the road, and there's nobody around for, who knows, you might not come around for hours. To find you or they might have to use your beacon to figure out where you are because when you're going through Mongolia you're really just using GPS waypoints there is no map there is no road you're finding your own road you're making your own road and you're traveling across just open grassland so um, I tried to work on the car as much as I could beforehand to get some hands-on experience with the mechanics of the car but really other than oil changes and changing the tires and you know, looking at the oil filters and et cetera, there wasn't a lot that we could do because we really can't carry the necessary parts or tools to do massive things that might happen. Right, so right. Um, I guess in a nutshell, that's, you know, just a quick overview of some of the things that you have to prep for that event. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, what was the history of the car before you started racing it? Was it already a race car or did you have to turn it into a race car? I bought a trailer queen. Oh, you did? Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. We well, knew it was I, new. 
It had just recently been uh, rebuilt. Beautiful paint job and fantastic interior. And then I proceeded to rip it all out and take it all apart and modify and change things as we went along. But, yeah, it was I, – I, she's more beautiful now. But it was definitely a very fine, beautiful car when I first purchased it. Right, right. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. So Antarctica, obviously you're going to have to do something for the cold by installing a heater or something. What's your plan for that? I talked to Jason, who will be with me in the car. He will be navigating the, our, our course on the ice. And he said, Renee, no matter what heater you put in that car, it's really not going to help at all. So we're just going to have to dress extremely warmly. Um, and so it'll all be about the clothes that we wear and the kinds of boots or things that we put on our feet and layers upon layers upon layers. So, um, yeah, heater won't be much good down there. Well, just get a Snuggie. You'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, that's really cool. So um, now we have a mutual friend, Sean Fannin, who I believe filmed for you a little bit on Peking to Paris, and he filmed my Mustang for Petrolicious a number of years ago. He kind of gave me a little heads up as far as your air cleaner issue. So could you talk about that a little bit? What do you do if you're on the road and you have something semi-major occur <laughs> to your car that, wow. you know, you need some serious work done? How do you address it? Gosh, good question. <laughs> well, well, first of all, we didn't know. We didn't know what the problem was. So the problem had to be diagnosed. And we were trailered from the side of the road just outside of Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. We've had a, it was really tough to get there. A lot of starts and stops along the way to get the car to that, to that location. But at that point, we were within cell service. And I actually called Tejo Porsche. I called my contact with Tejo. I can't remember if I called Richard or if I called Simon, but uh, just to give them a heads up of what was going on with the car. And then the organizers, you know, we, we need to be towed. So they just took a rope and we spent about three hours being towed. Uh, into Ulaanbaatar, and at that point, it was, okay, we got to get the car up, and we got to figure out what the problem is, and Porsche, Mongolia, had opened their doors to other drivers of Porsches, and we joined them and went to the dealership there and determined what had happened to the car. We didn't know at the time that it was the air filter thing. Um, we figured that out a little bit later when Francis Tuthill flew in to Nova Zabursk and looked at the engine later on. But at the time, it was, okay, what's going on? So we had to diagnose the car, and then we had to make a plan. Okay, what are we going to do? Are we, gonna, we don't have the parts to fix this thing. And we just came up with a plan that we would trade the car to Nova Zabursk, which is in Russia. At that point, uh, Francis Tuthill would fly in with components that he believed would solve our problem. But getting the car to Nova Zabursk was a huge, huge undertaking, trying to find a, a trailer that it could accommodate the car, that could get it there in time, and border crossings and our visas and all the problems with immigration and customs and everything else. So wow. uh, my, daughter, my daughter actually had a friend who had gone to school with her, and he was from Mongolia, and so he helped us out. I contacted him. He happened to be in the country at the time. We found this big, huge trailer that uh, was used for transporting commercial goods across the border into Russia. We had to devise this whole method to get the car up into the back of that trailer, the semi-truck. 
But uh, we did that, and he, that guy, he couldn't speak a word of English, but he kept messaging me along the way with photos or when he was stuck on the Russian border or all different things to let us know his progress. And we had a way of tracking the car, and he drove night and day to get that car there. So it would be there in time when the rest of the team came through the Peking to Paris that we would be there and we would have our two days uh, to get the car back on the road. And so that was that's what we did, and that's what our uh, – our journey was in the beginning. Wow, that's really, really amazing. You really got to be flexible when it comes to situations like that. And I'm glad it all worked out because it sounded like that that's a lot of stuff to worry about in a country you're not necessarily familiar with. Well, speaking of being not familiar, I'm sure a Porsche 356 coming through some of those countries looks like a little spaceship to the locals there. I can't imagine many folks have seen those. Could you kind of talk about the way the kids reacted and the response you got as you go through these different countries and a cool little car like that? They put a smile on people's faces. That car just puts a smile on your face. And it's like the Porsche version of a Herbie. And it just, uh, people just, you know, flock around it and laugh and enjoy and have their questions. And of course they want to get their photo with the car. And if you let them, they all want to get in it. And yeah, it's, it's, in a, it's definitely an anomaly and they love seeing it. Yeah, and I know, I love the pictures that you post on Instagram, especially the Peking to Paris rally. That was amazing, some of those pictures you posted. And I'm an animal guy, so could you tell me, did you have any weird or unexpected or interesting uh, interactions with some wild animals on some of your trips? Well, if we're talking about the Peking to Paris, I got to ride a Mongolian horse, which oh, was really? so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to lead around some... Mongolian camels, <laughs> and they, you know what, they heard those camels with a dog, just like a dog herd sheep. Wow. The dog okay. moved those camels in a line, just like if you're watching in Australia, those sheep herding dogs, how they do that. It's phenomenal what they can do. So I had, uh, you know, an amazing experience of pulling over on the side of this road and jumping out and asking this guy, of course, didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Mongolian, uh, if I could ride his horse. And at first, he wanted to lead me, and he was leading me around. And I said, kept shaking my head, no, no, and pulling on the lead rope. And so finally, he said, okay, he threw up his hands. He handed me the lead rope, and I was able to gallop around the Gobi in this, on this horse. But, uh, you know, I've had, you know, encounters with cattle coming across corners at high speed and, you know, five or six herd, you know, a, a small little herd of cattle being there, and you're like, okay, great, what are you going to do, slam on the brakes, are you going right. to you know, go through them, are you going to go off the road, what are you going to do, so there's been several types of encounters, um, Tasmania is known as the roadkill capital of the world, so oh my goodness. <laughs> you're avoiding lots of roadkill when you're racing in Tasmania. And that's a few of our of our animal encounters. My daughter Christina, who was photographing and filming in East Africa, was getting the, like the shot, and we were hauling down the road, and there she was on the side of the road. And then we go down just a, a little ways farther, and there's two female lions right there on the edge of the road. Oh my and goodness! Then I'm, wow. As we're going at speed, we're processing. Wait a minute, lions! My daughter walking. <laughs> not right about this picture. So, you know, uh, definitely in wildlife encounters along the way that always make it more memorable. 
Right. Yeah, that's really, really amazing. That is really cool. Now, I know you're not a car collector, but it's my understanding you have one other little Porsche in your collection. Is that right? I have one more. It's a 1957 356A, and it is has a pedigree of you know, classic car racing since the 60s. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, I bought that car so I could train and you know try to get some experience for these road rallies I was doing in Mexico. It's great. It's got its original drum brakes, and I, I haven't had an opportunity to take it out too much lately, but I just had it made street legal so I can drive it around here, and I really do want to take that car on some dirt roads, too. I'm just itching to do that, so it's going to start having its own adventures, and it's a little, it's a little sister car to the other one. Right, right. Well, if I ever make my way out your neck of the woods, I definitely want to go on a dirt road in a 356 with you. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, one thing I like to do at the end of this is play a little game I called Keep Cash and Crush. I think I gave you a heads up on this. Did I give you a heads up on this? You did. And I'm, uh, yes, you did. Go ahead. <laughs> so the idea is I give you three cars and you tell me which one you want to keep forever, which one you want to cash in, and which one you don't mind crushing. And the harder I make it on you, the more fun it is for everybody except for you. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Uh, this will be a little bit gentle. I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to go buy safari cars. So I'm going to pick out three traditional, quote-unquote, traditional safari cars, and you kind of tell me which one you want to keep, which one you want to cash in, and which one you want to crush. So the first one I'll pick for you is a traditional Toyota Land Cruiser, totally outfitted for, let's say, uh, the Outback. Uh, the second one I'll pick out for you is a Toyota or a Land Rover Defender 90, and let's say that one's outfitted for Africa. And then the third one I'll pick for you is a popular trend right now. It's the to make a Safari Porsche 911. So they take a 911 and put all-wheel drive on it, some big knobby tires, and you know have a good old time. So those are the three cars. Which one of those would you like to keep forever? Which one would you wouldn't mind cashing in? And then which one are you going to crush? Okay, you actually made it pretty easy for me. Uh-oh. The, okay. The crush, the crush car, Toyota Land Cruiser. Okay, that's the Done. crush. That's <laughs> Done. my crush. My okay. uh, My cash car is a Land Rover Defender. Okay. That's suited, that's suited for Africa. And my key car is if I ever leave a three fifty six rally car, I definitely want a nine eleven Safari built car. Oh, so okay. That would be my keep car. <laughs> okay, so I actually made that fairly easy. Now, I have to ask, because you've been in the deep, I guess, wilderness quite a bit on these rallies. Did you have a bad experience with uh, Toyotas by chance? Or is that just, you know, you knew you wanted to keep the uh, the Porsche and the Range Rover or Land Rover? It's just because I know the, which ones I want to keep, which ones I wanted to cash. If I could have three, <laughs> I'd keep that Toyota Land Cruiser for the Outback. <laughs> we awesome. we find room in the garage for it. Right, right, yeah, okay. Well, now, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your efforts in your racing, uh, Valkyrie Racing? We are on social media, and we have a website. Our Instagram page is... Valkyrie underscore racing. And our website is racevalkyrie.com. And that's V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E. You'll learn about what we've done, what we're planning on doing, where we're headed, um, all about child trafficking, what we're 
what we're passionate about there and why we're racing the heart of everything. And if you are, you know, hearts are tugged and you feel compelled, I'm not one to ask for money, but of course we want your donations. We have set a goal of a, of a million dollars that we want to raise by the end of the World Rally Tour. We have raised $200,000 to date, and that was without sending out the global call. And we are calling on everybody to join with us and make a difference and do something for these kids that are being trafficked. We support grassroots organizations that are doing the majority of the work, that are making the difference in the world. We vet them. All the money goes directly to them. Anything that's administrated is covered by Valkyrie Racing. So every dollar goes to these organizations to help these kids. We do education, rescue, and rehabilitation. In fact, I've been a part of investigative work, undercover investigative work, to get intelligence for the police to to arrest and prosecute these people that are trafficking. So we're all in on this cause, and we would love you to join with us. Wow, that's really awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Renee. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.